What's up, everybody? It's Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition, and you're tuned into Kind of Neat. Thank you guys so much for tuning in again. As always, uh, this week's guest we have on Bus Driver. Hellfire Club just released the Dorner vs. Tukey uh, mixtape, sorry, compilation. I don't know what to call it these days, but it's a piece of music that you guys can go check out at hellfireclub.bandcamp.com. He is all over it and uh, kind of helped spearhead getting the whole thing done, so we have a conversation about that amongst many other things. First things first, you can follow me on Twitter at Instantuition. You can follow my man, Ben Shim, behind the boards at I am database, based with two S's. You can follow us as a unit at That's Kinda Neat, Facebook.com slash Kinda Neat, YouTube.com, where you can see Bus Driver performing, YouTube.com slash That's Kinda Neat, and everything wrapped up in a pretty package on KindaNeat.net. Just broke 500 Twitter followers and 5,000 YouTube subscribers. Those are both good fucking milestones, so thank you guys for tuning in. Yesterday, when you guys hear this, it will have been a week ago, but yesterday, uh, I finally got to the point where I was really tired of people asking me, where's the album, where's the album? So I tweeted and let you guys know that yes, Mark and I have finished the recording process for the album. That part is done. We have all of the songs that are going to be on the album recorded. With that being said, we probably missed our window to do the 2013 release like we thought, and that's a combination of both of our faults, you know. The thing about making music as a team is that you both have to work on each other's schedules and and you know what happened this year was that uh, we were almost done. We thought we were almost done, you know, around February or March. And then what happened was we each went through kind of a creative sparsity at different times. So there was one point where he wasn't making too much beats and was kind of in a slump and and I was ready to write. And then when he was out of the slump and sending me a bunch of beats, all of a sudden my fucking creativity felt void and that combined into a few months of not being productive. And so, you know, that's a combination of both of our faults, but that shit happens, you know what I mean? And at the same time, both of us are, we have real life jobs and we have, uh, you know, I have to travel a lot for my work and I've also been doing a lot of these podcast things, which can, you know, it, this kind of taps into the same pleasure zone of rap creativity for me. I know that that might, that might not be what some of you guys want to hear, but like I get as much enjoyment out of this as I do of writing songs. And that's a personal thing. And if you disagree with it or, or get bummed about it, you know, sorry, but the thing about creating a record, what people don't realize at the timeline, I, I realized that um, it's been three years since I officially put an album out. Girls Like Me was the last record. It came out in 2010. And, and what kind of happened is like Mark and I put that album out. And in 2010, we kind of rested on our laurels. We were like, oh, we just put this out. So kind of the timeline of the way that things happen in real life and why we have seemed like we're slacking and disappointing so many fucking people, because I hear about it every day on Twitter, is that in 2010, we put out an album, uh, Girls Like Me. That's the last official record. And both of us, um, once we put that out, we kind of, you know, it's our fault. Again, we rested on our laurels and we kind of didn't make that much music in the year of 2010. We only actually made one song. Uh, it was called Dear John and it, it was, ended up being, it's going to be on this record and it ended up being the first song that we recorded for this new record. You know, at the end of 2010, I got fired from my job. 2011, I started working with Knocksteady. Knocksteady consumed all of my fucking time. Like I was working at that job pretty much literally, it felt like 24 hours a day. It was probably realistically 16 hours a day. I was busy all the time. I was busy helping out a lot of other artists. I was busy interviewing people. I wasn't concentrating on myself at all. I, you know, in 2011, I probably only wrote like maybe three songs for myself because I was, like I said, I was helping a lot of other people write and that was that. 
And then 2012, when the Knox Day shit fell apart, I spent a lot of time working on this record. And that's when I got the bulk of the record done was in 2012. And I thought that we were going to, I actually thought at a certain point that we were going to be ready to have it done for 2012. But like I said, you know, sometimes real life shit um, happens and a combination of like working and traveling and creative lulls and Mark living two hours away from me in Santa Barbara. And that's where we record at. It became a thing where I just wasn't having as much time to record. And I know that sounds kind of like an excuse. Maybe it is, but, um, again, I thought we were wrapped up in kind of like in February, like we, I felt like we only had one song left to record, but then we ended up recording a bunch more all the way up until last weekend. Uh, when I finally feel like we had everything that we needed. So with all that long rambling and kind of, I guess it's like my pseudo apology to people that pay attention to what I do. You know, with that being said, it is ready uh, and we are sequencing and figuring out the track list and figuring out like what songs to do videos for next and, and how we're going to release it. And all that shit takes time too, which is why I don't want to just fucking put it out the wrong way and put it out in two weeks. I, I want to like do it the right way and make sure there's like some nice pre-order packages and like some special things that I can give you guys. And I'm going to try to promise to like fucking work more. You know what I mean? I'm going to work more on music because I feel like it makes me feel better when I do that and I should do it more often. So yeah, give me time. The record's coming. I thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, I thank you guys for worrying about that. And, uh, hopefully you guys listen to this and will stop bugging me on Twitter about it because I just basically exploded on, well, not exploded, but I just, you know, somebody, everybody's, when's it coming? When's it coming? Why is it out yet? And so yesterday I just went, all right, look, leave me the fuck alone. The album is finished being recorded. The rest is all the technical shit and, uh, making the artwork and all that stuff. And it, and it takes time. It just takes time. So it's coming. Uh, sorry for this emo fucking rant. <laughs> we talked to bus driver bus driver is somebody who's been doing it a long time too and i've known him for a long time he's a mysterious character try to kind of tap into that a little bit and uh you guys will see what happened it was an interesting conversation so without further ado here is the interview with my man bus driver the Jay Leno show or some shit? I don't know who I was with, but it was, there was a lot of pre-game talk and uh, and made me very nervous. But um, but but no, it, I'm not nervous at all. I'm just being respectful and I'm glad to be here. I'm just mad unprepared. Like, I just come in and, and let the conversation go where it may. Well, I'm antisocial, so every social interaction is, like, plotted yeah. with me very carefully. You know, I'm pretty antisocial myself, but I do a good job of masking that. So people are always kind of like, what? You're not antisocial. You're not this and that. I'm like, nah, I, I, I smile when I'm out and about, but most of the time I spend in the apartment alone. <laughs> You know? I hear you. And I feel like that's a fucking, I was going to say a solid way to live, but honestly, I wish I wasn't as antisocial. Well, I think if you have a creative inkling, it kind of plays into that maybe mm. a tad bit. Yeah. When did you realize that you're antisocial? Oh, I never what? I never realized that I was social. Oh, okay. You've just always been antisocial. No, it was when I was a kid, it was horrible. Really? My God. How so? It was abysmal. I just couldn't talk to anyone. Why? Because, I mean, it was it was a combination of a few things. Um, when I was a kid, when I became a teenager, it was the fact that I couldn't, I had so many social anxieties kind of bundled up in me. And then it was, we are in the midst of, we are in the height of gang banging. Oh, yeah. So it made it even more awkward. Can't even talk to anyone. Where were you living when the gang banging culture was thriving? Well, I grew up kind of like straddled 
on the fence of a few different neighborhoods. I live right in I, I grew right in the middle of LA, right in Crenshaw on Eighth. Uh-huh. It was interesting because Mid City was right there. I was kind of, I was in Koreatown technically, but Hancock Park was just north of us. But it was it was uh, it was a trying time, you know. All my all my all my homeboys were in tag and cruise, or you know, or, or dipping their toe in tag banging, and you know, and I'm just like, why do we have to go to tag banging? Why can't we go to Tag tango. Why? <laughs> why can't it be a a graffiti dance? Why know, can't it just be the beat it video? For, yeah, every day just beat it's just like occurring in different hoods <laughs> without the knives. That would have been dope if the nineties in LA were like that. What is the difference between tag banging and gang banging? Um, origin story. Okay, you mutate to a banger differently. Ah. Uh. One's a mutant, one's one's a gang's power through some kind of scientific mishap. Because uh, I feel like that's a very L.A.-centric thing. Like, I had no idea what a tag banger was when I moved here. You shouldn't ask me about gangs because I purposely forgot about most things. That's but good. my crew, when I was growing up, we were just, everyone was from... Actually, that's banging culture and forms. Because I'm, I'm from Project Bloat, and ever since I was a teenager... How the blood was stratified and how we kind of related to each other was based on gang culture. Yeah, the big homies and the little homies, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, but that's – that wasn't a very purposeful thing. It was just very intuitive. It was just like, oh, you little homie. Oh, the the, um, little homie got to go serve them. Like, come on, got to put the little homie on. You know, that's how I got tormented all through my teen years. Right. Just being thrown in a little – Into the lion's den. Rap – puzzles yeah yeah go rap with them for a long time oh go have reckless serve you while he's off stage and making fun of you and rapping at you were you already like antisocial in elementary school i could see you as a as a young kid that was like reading books way beyond his years you know what i um i started reading at one point in my life but i had a really brief period where i was really uh well read for a second but then it was a, it was like a brief it was like a five year period yeah and then that was it was it in your early 20s it was my teens yeah my, my, my mid-teens to my just my 20s just when just when rap swallowed me whole yeah so where did you go to school um elementary school okay that was a pilgrim school what does that mean pilgrim that's a pilgrim school yeah that's a, in downtown LA okay and uh, it was a kind of a fancy, uh, fancy school. And um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's actually not too far from where Dumbfounded used to live. I don't know. Going to school in, in LA was was difficult because, like I said, the '90s and whatnot, and gang banging and social anxieties and hammer pants. So, uh, but I went to. <laughs> hey, it was a big factor. But I went to high school in uh, in Arizona to a boarding school. Oh, you moved out to Arizona for a while? Yeah, yeah. I went to Verde Valley School because my, uh, my parents had money. What was that uh, transition like? Well, here's my story. I uh, My parents wanted me to get out of L.A. because mm-hmm. of... That ta- stuff. Tag banging, gang yeah. banging, and tag tango, especially, because uh-huh. that was becoming a big deal. <laughs> Because my my dad had resources and he was doing his thing, he paired me with my um, my uncle, and we went to my uncle's old stomping grounds in Bahia in Brazil, 
I stayed there for a year. You were in Brazil for a year? Yeah, I was homeschooled. And That's I just fucking roamed. Yeah. What year was that? I was 16. Damn. And what's that experience like for a 16-year-old? It was, it was amazing. It was transformative. It's, it's the only reason why I uh, arrived here. Do you feel like you came out of your shell a bit while you were there? No, I don't know. I never, I've never come come out of my shell. It's all, it's, it's all farcely. It's all just a sham. But it was cool. It was really different. I learned the difference between American life and life. Did you start speaking Portuguese? Yeah, I learned how to speak Portuguese. I don't speak anymore. Yeah, because I haven't spoken since really. Well, what did you get into down there? I'm interested. Let's hear about that year in Brazil. That sounds uh, tight. Yeah, I don't. It was very. Colorful. That's all I have to say. It was very colorful. I believe it. But yeah, and I I, uh, I went to school in Paris briefly, and uh, that was really brief. After Brazil? Yeah, after Brazil. Damn, you a well-traveled motherfucker. Well, I'm lucky because my uh, my father he uh, he did well in television, so he uh, at a certain point in my life things really got you know there all of a sudden we were middle class, upper middle class, you know. But at the same time, did you feel like any sort of um backlash towards your parents for shipping you off to boarding schools or what or was that was that something that you wanted to do i missed out some at some i mean the only thing i regretted is just stuff that happened at the blow that's the only thing i really cared about at that time when you moved to brazil and then paris you were already like going to the bloat oh yeah the blow was already happening yeah yeah I, actively yeah i was always involved i mean from how old was i when it started 14 or something i don't know yeah but but 15 no no i wanted a good life when i was 15, 14 anyway I was like 15 or something. So like all this happened around the first few years of the bloat. So like the first of the first three years, I think I missed two of them like solidly. Yeah. Just rap. <laughs> but like we were so bad at back then, Lee, we would rap over the phone. It was really interesting, man. That's tight. We were crazy, man. Like, right. like, 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 like. The, Battle rap letters. And seriously, the big homies would call me like, hey, driver, what you been writing lately? I bet I have to go, you know, go into my little rap book, but kick my little bars. That's amazing. Have me on speakerphone, you know. When you're in Brazil and Paris, were there other, or did you like uh, gravitate towards any other people that were making music in those areas? No. Brazil for me wasn't about music in that way. Okay. I mean, it was definitely about music. That place is... It seems inundated with music there. It's kind of... You find out... That's what I mean about American life. You find out the true... The true purpose <laughs> behind music, the true value, the true role that it plays in people's lives. When you see people who who have factored it into multiple points of their day, you know what I mean? Like, this point of the day, we go dance this point of the day we dance a little bit you know not as much dancing but still dancing you know <laughs> yeah yeah you know and this it's this, like a real joyous celebration or something is yeah, yeah. And, and but it's it's it works in the rhythm of the day there's so many uh unhealthy habits that we take for granted i was hoping you were going to say the rhythm of the night and then i was just going to start techno dancing the rhythm of the night see, see, i wasn't see i wasn't looking at you so i wasn't <laughs> i wasn't in my, my fucking zone yeah yeah so, like, when did you start writing? Because I feel, man, if you were already going to good life at 14, 15, and then the blow, like, you must have just, rap must have hit you very early. I was horrible when I was a kid. I, I started really seriously when I was, like, 13. And then um, but when I went to the good life, things kind of changed, you know. I really uh, understood, understood that, uh, that what I was dealing with was dangerous. 
How so? Because it was so uh, seductive, you know. It, can, it could easily uh, consuming. Yeah, I mean, like I could, I could easily project there that I'd be here now. I'm like, oh shit! When I'm thirty something, I'm gonna be right doing the same shit because this shit is so tight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. So I knew when I was a kid, I was like, oh Jesus, oh no, oh no, I really like this. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I mean, I did like rap. You know, I loved like. That was when Daz Effects was out. So I was like, oh, Daz Effects is tight. <laughs> Didn't to, you guys have like an anti Daz Effects rule? At the no, moment? but that's when I went to the life. I went yeah. to the life to learn that rule. Yeah. But I went there and I saw like, you have to understand like shit that happened there, even though you know the people who were responsible for some of the things that happened, you can't even really, they can't even be held responsible now. You know, it's something that happened in a very particular time under very particular pressures. And you really just, uh, I just, I'm happy that I got to see it because I don't want to attach any hyperbole to it. But right. it, it was pretty special. But anyway, I would see, I saw Abstract Tribe Unique and then I saw Sesquipedalian on my first night. And it was just like, whoa, you know. Yeah. Was there like a already an underground tape culture back then going on? Like, had you heard of any of these people before you got there? Well, when I got there, I, I, I didn't really know. I wasn't into it as much. Yeah. I remember hearing this story, though, on a, another podcast that I heard you on, uh, where you say you met LL Cool J at a very young age. And I hate to, like, bring up shit you've already talked about, but I think that's a good, like, uh, perspective point. Was that a moment where you're like, oh, shit, like, fucking rap? Well, I think what more shocked me about LL Cool J was his story about how he got compensated. Did I, did I already say that? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't remember that. Anyway, it's not, it's not really my story to tell. It's yeah. his story. But what I heard is... Um, they um, he refused to be paid in cash or money, and they basically paid him in Adidas. Wow! Paid him in sneakers. No shit. Like multiple, multiple boxes. No, uh, no Adidas or Felis. I don't know. Uh-huh. Anyway, sneakers. Sneakers. That's what he got paid for his cameo in Crush Groove. Sneakers. No shit. Real b boy or real mistake. I don't know. Yeah. You decide. <laughs> Like, at that point, was rap already a fucking important part of your life, livelihood even then? Like, was that what you were listening to by the time you met him and shit? I mean, my attachment to Crush Groove was that my father had something to do with it. Right. So when I heard the song on the radio, you know, I'd, I'd freak out, you know? Like, I remember we, we heard it once. We drove around the block. We were just driving home. We drove around the block. I'm just, like, singing along. Like, oh, snap, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where my... Attachment comes from, so I kind of have that affinity for the cast. Right. But, but yeah, meeting L. Cool J and hearing that story, those those things kind of, I mean, that created the rap mythology. Yeah. For me, you know that that uh, that unpersonalized it. I mean, if I was smarter, I would have extrapolated what that meant and how that would apply to right now, because because what made L. Cool J attractive um, to me then is what. <laughs> Is what we all strive for now. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, I was, I was really lucky to have to have that personal, you know, um, <laughs> interaction. Yeah. Do you have earlier mu- music memories? Like, what were the sounds floating around that mom and dad were playing around the house? You know what? My parents didn't play too much music. Really? Dad being into television, was it more? Was it? Was he more of like a cinema head? Was it like a lot of? Um, 
interesting movie is playing or what? I, I mean, I was a real solitary kid. I, uh, not too much, you know, not too much of that. I don't really have those, those tropes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, mom and dad used to play old soul records. I used to, like, I used to sample those soul records. I used to make beats. I used yeah. to rap about, no, <laughs> nigga, I didn't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My nigga, I was in my room, quiet by myself. What were you doing in your room? I was, I don't know what kids do. Masturbating, rapping, playing video games. What kids do? Yeah, yeah. What video games were you into? I don't want to think about it because I think it's like there's like one eye I think about it. There's yeah. like a big ominous black hole like in like the periphery and it's like sucking my mind into it. Really? It's dark times. Dark like, times. Dark times. Man, that's funny. I look back on my childhood so fucking – at the time when I was living through it, it's like, oh, I can't wait to be an adult. And now I'm an adult and I'm like, fuck, childhood was pretty tight. No, I mean I I, I don't mind my childhood. I really don't mind it because I mean Lord knows I don't mind it at all. Yeah, yeah. But you know. So you get back from Paris and then the blow's really cracking. Man, Jesus, what happened then? Hmm, I got back. Well, no, I had a baby, so that's that was kind of the focus. How old were you when that happened? I was 20, and uh, my daughter was born. So I had a job. I was a PA for a second, and um, I don't know. I lost my job as a PA because I was doing a tour with the fellowship, and, um, and it went over a day, and... Um, but that was right when my first record came out, Memoirs of the Elephant Man. Uh-huh. So I guess that would have had to have been 99. Yeah, that would have had to have been Hollywood 99. I remember that was Halloween. Hollywood. Halloween. <laughs> 1999. And um, so, yeah, that's, that came out. And uh, I kind of kicked off my career. I guess I kind of had to. Cause, How uh, long did you work on that record? I forget. Um, maybe a year. Yeah. It usually takes me a year so. And how did you like? Who who are the producers on it? Like, tell me the process about making your first record. Because I said you have your whole life to write your first record, and then you only got a year to write the next one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, tell me uh, how the times were different back then. Because I would imagine it was much harder to find a a working mic or find somebody to mix and master or what have you. Well, I don't want to talk about this stuff too much because I feel like a dinosaur, and it makes me feel self conscious. Dude, it's hip to be a dinosaur right now. Joey Badass wishes he was a dinosaur. You know? I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I'm an adult. Right. With real-time pain. Um, um, no pain, actually. It's, let me stop being so dramatic. Uh, <laughs> well, it was, it was a really interesting time because the blowed back then was a very serious force in rap. Very serious. And um, we were supposed to be the best, and we believed we were the best, and everyone thought, and we all agreed, and we were tough, and blah, 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 blah. And so every night I would come to the shack, which was the studio for the afterlife, which was a particular faction of the blowed that I occupied with me and CVE and hip hop clan and choo choo and of Mexican descent and people like that. And so I would go to the shack, probably like seven red would be there hanging out. I mean, most people in after in afterlife, I don't know what they did. I assume most people, you know, did a little hand to hand. I don't know. I don't know what anyone did. But anyway, Ray was always hanging out, so we were always at the shack. So I, he would always be at the shack. So I would go to the shack, and it was just, it was a, he was always available doing music. It was a really great environment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Very fertile creatively. So I go over there. We play some video games, and we go into the back room. And we just had a little room. 
And at the shack, when I first started working there, they had the largest four-track recorder I've ever seen. I, in my, I've ever seen in my life to this day. It's, it was just a huge, just, it was like a, a cash register. It was like two cash registers. I forget what it was called, but it was a four-track with with just a tape, uh-huh. it was it was humongous. Anyway, so we used to record it. It really actually sounded really dope. Actually, now that I think about it, but anyway, we go in the back. They have some synths. They have a little drum machine, a little MPC. Won't do won't. We had for years and years. We used Cakewalk. We were sequencing on Cakewalk. Like, What's that? Exactly. What is that? I feel like I've heard of it, but that is this an early computer program or something? Because this is on the internet. It's, I'm just going to leave it at Cakewalk. Google that. That's <laughs> all <laughs> so I got to say. Anyway, but it was a really great environment because um, I could work really late, and Rid was so creative. Rid, Rid kind of really informs uh, my work process, or he really did at that time because he was just always creating, always like making beats and rhyming, freestyling like his – he uh, he taught me that compartmentalizing your creative output, if you can untether yourself, it's a good idea. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't be afraid of it. Like oh, like you know, I want to. I'm really musical. I like melody. Well, why don't you play some keys? You know, you, you learn a tiny bit, and so now you have some working knowledge of that. And, you know, that'll inform your songwriting. Won't do won't. Yeah. So like, Rid really instilled that in me because Rid is Rid is Rid is a brilliant rap guy, and uh, he always was. And uh, but yeah, it was really good. Really good first record. Really good first record experience. I give it a thumbs up. I give it a 9.5. Speaking of untethering yourself, I find your vocal device, your voice, I find the way that you use it very interesting because as we sit here and talk, you have kind of a deep, natural voice, but on record, you go a little higher, you go nasally, but you have a lot of control over it and can go up and down. Was it a conscious decision to kind of like have this rap voice that is different than your speaking voice? And what was the process of finding it? Um, it just came from imitating good lifers. That's all that is. And then uh, settling into something that was an in-between of what I liked from people I was colluding with and what I thought I could do, you know. Because mm-hmm. everyone raps so crazy, you know, there was, I don't know, it's just a lot of variation you can go for. But um, I just, I, um, I listen to a lot of... Uh, I kind of, in passing, listened to a lot of opera as a kid, and then a lot of, um, we used to listen to a lot of bebop, a lot of vocalese, jazz records. Yeah, I was going to say, you kind of used your voice as like a jazz instrument of sorts. Yeah, well, that well, that was kind of the training. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a young bloatian and a choo-choo, who's the host of The Good Life, and and of the bloat for most of it, or he, um... You know, he would just cipher with me. He would throw on the jazz channel, K-L-O-N or something, and, you know, we just cipher with that on some standards for, you know, a couple hours. No shit. Yeah, that's, 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 that's what we would do when I was a kid. And just shit like that, you know. And I actually went to a, I went, I went to a music camp once, and I had to, like, <laughs> I went to a music camp, and I had to, like... One time at band camp. Yeah, it's 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 actually I don't even know what happened, but all I know is that I went to a music camp and they assumed that I was a musician. 
Yeah. I was running around rapping everywhere. Yeah. Like, oh, look at that. Where did he go? Oh, look at him. He's the, the rap scatting lunatic kid who didn't pay for his, um, his, um, his time at music camp. How did you end up at a music camp? I don't know. Were you playing instruments back in the day? No, I don't. I don't play anything. I don't play anything good. I act like I can play keyboard, but I can't. I'm sure you can plink away and learn things by ear. I'm um, yeah, I'm not too uh, I'm not too learned, but uh, I try. You said you released your first record in in '99. Technically, yeah. Yeah, but it was probably finished a while before that or something. No, not '99. It was done. It yeah, came out right. When yeah. It was done. I moved to California in 2000, and I was living in Pomona at the time, and uh, I started seeing a lot of you guys at the Glass House all the time. Yeah. Like, uh, a lot of Blodians were opening for every show at the Glass House, and I would see you around there, and you guys were so fucking intimidating, I'll tell you that, because you guys are all very good at what you do, but you also would walk around like, you guys all knew you were very good at what you would do, and you weren't weren't scared to prove it. Do you remember, like, stomping around at those times, and just kind of, like, being out on the scene, and, and going to every show? Because I feel like I would see you guys at every show. We were, we were very active. Um, I recommend everyone be in a rap crew at some point in their life. So it's, it's, it's an unparalleled sense of camaraderie. But uh, but uh, but yeah, we we had made it our point to go to shows, see if we can rhyme with people. If we had friends, rhyme at a J Five show, rhyme at a Whoop to Whoop show, and yeah, we were just we were just that was what it was all about. <laughs> yeah, I've gone through this, and I'm sure you've gone through it. And you probably went through it maybe a couple of years earlier, but like things eventually, you have these people that you run with, and then as time goes on and people grow up and things happen, like things get distant. Have you kept in contact with a lot of people that you're running with at that time? Um, as the paths of life take everybody in a different direction. It's, I mean, yes, yes. Um, but with how that particular association works, your friends kind of multiply because, you know, unlike any other rap crew, I mean, Blood really was a family in that, we would take people in and, like, I don't know how, but instill them with some kind of rap knowledge. And they would have some certain slant on rap and they'd be embraced, you know what I mean? And like, mm-hmm. So in that, you know, you have, you get a lot more people from these really relationships. And in music, that's pretty, those relationships are pretty central to what I do still. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you felt like the big homie at the Blode? I don't, I've never felt like the big. Homie. You don't have any little homies that you've taken under your wing. Come on now. You have to understand, Lee. When I when I got to the point where I felt like I needed to do that, yeah. I realized that it was bullshit. How but so? I didn't. Really, I, I mean, it's not bullshit. It's not bullshit. But from where I thought we needed to go, it was bullshit. I mean, it, it's not bullshit within our circle. But where I was standing at a certain point, I was like, okay. Should I assume, should I really take this bloody hubris and try to go from point A to point D with Uh it? Like, I don't know if I can take it that far. You know, I may need to mold it into something else, Uh (laughs) you know. So, so, so that's kind of what I learned. And, and, uh, so I've never really felt like the big homie, you know. Being that you've said you were antisocial your whole life, even being inside of that family, did you still feel like an outsider to a certain extent? Uh, I'm always an outsider. 
And I don't mean to say that in any romantic kind of way. <laughs> Ask anyone who works with me. Not that you need to. <laughs> but if you need a character witness, they're available. Yeah. But I wonder, like, are you a natural leader? Um, At this point, I just really... There's a desperation that's really palpable. Mm. That um, It's really becoming kind of like a bonding agent between me and a bunch of my friends. I mean, that's kind of what Hellfire Club is. Yeah, and that's what brings me to it because you guys just released Dorner vs. Tookie. And I associate fairly closely with a lot of the guys on Hellfire Club. And, and having heard the, the inside speak, it seemed like you were kind of the catalyst and the leader of this project making sure you – were, you were the figurehead making sure that it got done, yeah? Well – Here's what I think, Lee, and I'm I'm serious. Like, I occupy a very particular niche in rap music, mm-hmm. but in no way do I feel like it's exclusive or that I don't feel like it's... I don't know. I feel like we get, um, <laughs> we get shoved off into this corner sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do understand why, and I appreciate the reasons why, but I just... I felt like this year we really needed to step forward... Especially with the stuff. I mean, I'm just paying attention to people in my collective. I'll call, I'll call it that because we're grownups. Mm-hmm. You know, listening to what Mike Eagle does and what No Can does and what Milo does, I was like, okay. You know, it was just really inspiring. So I just, I basically just decided that I want to make an attempt to not be in this corner as much. I mean, if you have to <laughs> retreat to it during the. Uh, Winter, that's fine, but let's 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 come out swinging for a second and let niggas know that yes, we understand what rap is about, and we never didn't understand, you know. And here we are, and like fuck with us, and uh, and you know that's a that's a very that's a very basic fundamental statement, but I felt it was very important to make, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, I can't do it by myself because I'm so polarizing, you know what I mean. So I got to take the homies. And I got to say, what do we have in common? <laughs> what problem do we have in common? Oh, the corner. Let's get out of this motherfucking corner. A tiny bit. Mm-hmm. You know, don't ever still use just a step, you know. I mean, I'm tired of like, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on, on, on a limb and just say things like this, I guess. Um, like, I don't like like how Mike Eagle is regarded as. Like an up and comer, it's like no, like like oh, he's promising. It's like no, he's brilliant. He's fucking like, totally established himself as a solid voice. Like he's, it's he's, ridiculous. He's brilliant right now. Yeah, and absolutely. When next year comes around, it's you know, maybe people will understand. But you know, that's how I feel, and I'm like, I'm not wrong. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like yeah. I know that I, I know, regardless of what my act means to anyone, I'm not wrong about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's what I do, and 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 that's what I'm involved. Like I've told Mike a million times, it bugs me so much the way he's you know painted in the media, and and I hate that whole thing of like, oh yeah, this up and coming new voice. It's like, nah, he's not. It's not a new voice. He is a fucking well established voice. It's just that everyone is late to it. You know what I'm it's saying? It's all good. That's fine, and that's a part of it. But it's just I feel like, you know, I mean, Mike James. I mean, no can. I mean, I'm just you know, I've been batting for these guys for years, and I just. Uh, I feel like the world is ready. Anyway, I'm I'm babbling now. No, I think, it's good. I think babble. I think that my that my blood sugar dropped. <laughs> my blood sugar dropped right there. So talk to me about the process of Dorner versus Tuki. Dorner versus Tuki was a labor of love. Uh, it took a lot of effort, 
on my part, but uh, I had a lot of good help. I don't know, everyone kind of uh, responded when I asked them to do things. Like, you know, if someone turned in a song and I didn't think it was the greatest, I'd be like, what about if you do this? And then the next song was it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, so it's pretty easy, you know what I mean? We did that song, DBT, in this room, in Cosmic Zoo, and um, it was really easy. I thought I didn't think it was done when it was done, but it kind of was. And yeah, so I had a lot of help. I mean, but you know, everyone, everyone's really good. So it's just so it's super easy, you know. Yeah. As that is, I just had to say, let's do it. You know, <laughs> everyone just has it felt refreshing. Like, do you feel a new fucking burst of energy, the wind beneath your wrap wings, or anything like that? Um, I mean. I don't know. I, I, I really want to, I really just pay attention to how everyone else feels about it. And I, uh, <laughs> I just kind of respond off everyone else. I, I really don't know how the outside world responds is such an abstract concept to me. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? But I mean, being around this, this group of guys that you've known for many years now, I know that you, James, Mike, Eric, Kale, you guys have all known each other for many years, but now that you're kind of teamed up in a different, um, in a different context, I mean, do you feel like it's it's breathing some new creative energy into all of you guys? Well, at this point, the creative energy is there, mm-hmm. and we're just throwing it out. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done a lot. This year has been like really. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of songs, you know, that, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, I just hope that it continues. But yeah, it is refreshing. It, it's refreshing because. I've I've assumed a real I've tried to assume I think a no bullshit attitude has been pushed uh, upon me, you know what I mean? And and the fact that everyone in Hellfire is so able and good and you know, it just really uh it's good that we have a lot of tools. I can be really honest about uh about how we can solve problems because everyone has tools and we you know, we can solve problems. Like, right, right. Like, you know what I mean? I mean yeah. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's good to it's good to have a You can kinda take that. on an A and R role essentially of like, oh, this isn't working, let's try this instead. Well, I'm 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 way more hippie than that, man. I'm just I'm just hanging out, you know what I mean? I'm just you know, it's just it's all you know, this is all this is all James is doing. This is all No Can's doing. I'm just playing my part. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. that's uh, that's 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 all that's all I really ask of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Being that you say you always feel like an outsider, and even when the blo- like I, I've always looked at you like you sound different than everybody, and I fully fucking respect that because I've always said like I don't think anybody could sound like you if they tried. You know what I mean? <laughs> and taking that outsider's route. And doing your own thing so heavily for so many years, like what was the what was the point where you're like, oh, you know what, I want to, I want to invest some time into this Hellfire Club thing, and like I can see these common bonds between the people that are, that are involved. Like, what made you want to join the team? Well, I always want to be on, always want to be on the team. I mean, my my bloating upbringing has instilled a lot of things in me, and you know, it's pretty innate and I always want to, you know, I always want to be down with the homies when it makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so it was a no brainer, but I think I, honestly, the first point was when I heard the, the, uh, the first mixtape Prometheus, the, oh, one, yeah. the one that you were on when you were around, when you put out your record and, um, and I heard that and I, and I, and I, I just, it kind of sparked me. It kind of like, I kind of woke up. I was like, Oh, okay. This is kind of what's, 
where things are going. I kind of see where this could go. So I just got excited then, and I got involved. I don't know. I just started hanging out more with No Can, and somehow we did a record. I didn't even, I didn't even know how. How did Flashbang Grenada happen? Oh, the only thing I remember about Flashbang Grenada is Oakland. I remember Oakland, but why but, would happen in Oakland? I don't know. He did some writing in Oakland. I think I think that's where. Oh yeah, because James was still living up there. He was still living up there at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he he came up with the title of the album of. The Flashbang Grenade album, ten, 10 Haters in Oakland. But like when I when we started writing for Flashbang Grenade, that's when I became really invested in Hellfire Club as an idea. And you know what? I just the reason why I was gun shy at first is because I mean I, we have a natural as entertainment people. You really have to like straddle a fence, especially when you're in the indie realm of being a careerist and, and you know and and you know and paying attention to your every creative whim so you don't know you don't know if you're making the right business choice you know if you're making the right creative choice and i and i really was just really i've been so gun shy and i i learned to be gun shy on those kind of things but um but when flashbang came around i was i was just like what am i doing this is it this is what I should be doing. I was like, it's okay. It's, it's, you know, yeah. Let's go for it. Why not? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like, especially in LA, there's so many people who are like, who use inaction. I don't know who who throw inaction at creative opportunities some sometimes, and it's like I see why, but you know, I just didn't want to be one of those people. You know, what I mean, I just, I just, you know, this, this, this is us. Let's go for it. You know, yeah. It's not a big deal. I think the incarnation of it right now makes complete sense. Like the four of you, the three or four of you that are like the main staples, like sure. you guys fucking make sense together. And it, and I think it works sonically, stylistically, like yeah. it just works. And so like, I think, I think it's dope what you guys are doing right now. Yeah. I've asked Mike this kind of same question, but you and him, I look at you two and you guys are so prolific and you're always writing. Mm-hmm. And a guy like me, like I can't help but honestly be a little envious of that, like because I'm not a heavy writer that way. Like yeah. obviously, I fucking my output shows that. Yeah. Um, dude, how how do you continue to be inspired? How what are the fucking voices in your head that are helping you do this for twenty plus years now? If you were, oh since you were fucking thirteen, you know. Oh my god, Jesus! Never say never say those words again to me. Like, Sorry, never say twenty plus years to me again. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I just, I just had a flashback. Um, well, no, that's the thing. But that's the thing is like next year is going to be my fucking twenty year anniversary of rapping as is well. It? Well, I started when I was thirteen as well, just writing by myself in my room. I never record. I actually I did record a song when I was thirteen. Yeah. But you know, like that's the whole thing is that if you really put it in perspective, like this shit has been a part of our lives for a long time. Well, if I think about rap like how people think about rap now, I would be out of my mind insane because I I don't go I I don't line up with any success story or failure story. So I don't even know what the hell I would think of myself. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't really think of it in that way. I really realize that this is, which is, and I, I don't want to say this to sound irresponsible. I don't want to frighten my daughter or anything or anybody, but it is jazz. This is, this is, <laughs> this is very jazz oriented, the practice Yeah, that this kind of rap kind of lends itself to It's you know, and, and I, and in it being jazz, like you just hone things and you just figure things out and you just keep that that curiosity uh, alive, you know. And it's just uh, 
I don't know how you do it, but you just do it somehow, you know. And it's, uh, but I, I think I think being very solitary does kind of cater to it. Um, I was having a talk um, outside a show with um, Getty one time with Serengeti. You know, I was telling him like, oh yeah, I'm not really fucking sure what I'm doing. Like, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing this. Who knows if this will be my fucking last record or if this will be something that helps motivate me to make more after or if it becomes a viable yeah. fucking career, et cetera, et cetera. I said, I don't know what's going to happen with my rap shit. And he goes, I said, I might just stop. Who knows? And he goes, do you really think you could stop? And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Like, I feel like at this point in my life, I do it. I do it partially to help myself, but I do it a lot to like fucking so people can hear it, mm-hmm. uh, which is I don't know, which is maybe kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if people lost interest and stopped listening, I would probably stop doing it. But do you? My question is, he was he was like, I could never stop, regardless. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like I can't stop. Like, do you feel like you would ever be able to stop writing? I don't like using the term forever. I don't like permanence mm-hmm. because it's used so often in rap. I don't want people to confuse me <laughs> for portrayed. He knows some kind of rap cliche. I don't know, man. I don't know. All I know is that I I feel more into it now than I've felt ever almost. Well, not ever. In a long time. And I, and that's why I asked about the, you know, the new outburst of, of creativity and if you felt refreshed. Because I feel like, yeah, you, you guys are running around like you're 19 again and you guys are yeah. fucking rapping and, and barring out and, I, and that's great. Like, well, it's, it's, it's cause I miss, I miss that feeling of being a fucking 19 year old that wanted to rap everywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My thing is, is this like when, you know, like I said, desperation is informing a lot of what I do now. And it's like, I'm not going to act like certain tools aren't available, you know, or act like certain trends aren't happening. You know what I mean? I'm going to try to figure some out and mix things or, you know what I mean? Not that that's anything unique, but mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's, you know, the, um, the, um, the um, impetus is very pure. <laughs> it's just like, you know what I mean? Like things are going strange. Let's make some stuff, you know, but we'll see. I'm, I'm, uh, everyone's working on solo records right now. So it's, it's a very, everyone's in a weird very particular headspace in Hellfire. You said desperation twice. Des- describe the desperation. What do you mean by it? Define it. Well, I'm a, for the past, I don't know since when, I would say since 2000 and early 2000, early aughts, I became an official independent music thing. Mm-hmm. Not a big deal, just a, a rap act. Oh, click on click on the thing, the, the rapper, listen to it. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. I was that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, not that I mean, still am, perpetually am, but but it just um, the economy of things was just it was different. It was it was it was rooted in in album sales and uh, and 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 touring and things of that nature. And uh, so you know, as things change throughout the years, and we arrive at now, just. It's been really volatile, you know. You got to retool. <laughs> you can't complain. You can't pout. You know all these niggas talking about. Oh, the kids. Oh, shut up. You know what I mean? You were that motherfucker. Shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? Or complain about it and then talk about later how man, I'm so distraught that I'm complaining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but like it's like, but it's good. It's a really interesting time in rap. So I'm I'm really excited. 
Yeah, and that stokes me out that, like, you guys are not a fucking crew of complainers. You're not saying, all oh, these whippersnappers or this and that and the other. It's like fucking... I mean... Man, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, worrying about relevance doesn't lead to anything but stress. And if you just fucking don't worry about that and you do yourself, like, you become more relevant than ever. You know what I mean? I mean, and it's hard to worry about relevance where we are. Like, we see things way before they become absolutely something that's really bankable. And we watch, like, how many things have you watched? In the last three years, we've watched from the jump, like, everything that has blown up. And it's like, we we watch it happen. We're like, oh, but that's, what? wait, wait, wait a minute. Oh, oh, so that's, okay. Well, we're we're doing this, you know what I mean? And that's kind of what you got to do, so... I'm not tripping. It's it's fierce. This rap shit is like nothing that they say. All they do is lie out there. Yeah. This rap shit is different. It's different. <laughs> do you feel comfortable on the road? On the road. Yeah. Now where on the road do you mean? I don't know. I feel like you're you're a road warrior. You've been touring now for a while. You said your first one was when you were what? I've been touring 20? for over 10 years. Yeah. I tour a lot. I tour a lot. I don't tour as much as I used to, but I tour a good amount. And I feel like you probably get a lot of uh, you get a lot of alone time when you're on the road, which is probably having talked to you now for this 45 minutes. It seems like alone is where you feel very safe. Uh, um, I don't know if I, I don't I wouldn't paint that picture. Um, <laughs> it's just where I happen to be, Lee. It just it just works out that way. But um, <laughs> well, touring touring doesn't mean alone time. Touring means being inundated with. Your bandmates or your, your your group or your tour group. Yeah. That's that's what that means. Or But by the end of the tour nobody's talking to each other. You're in the back of the bus with your headphones on. Well, if you don't know how to tour, yeah. Yeah. If you're one of those people. Yeah. If you know, if you're hanging out with a bunch of ego maniacal, you know, self centered guys who don't wanna compromise and make everything So do you enjoy finding camaraderie like, on the road? I don't really do that that much. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I've never traveled with a big crew uh-huh. during the various incarnations of the bus driver live act. Uh-huh. And the most people I've had is three people on the road, including myself. Um, so, uh, but that's always been fantastic. I, I, I like bringing people, good people, on the road because America. I'm all bringing people on the road in the United States. Mm. Um, in Europe, you tour alone. Well, just touring the United States is a different animal. You have to talk about everything else differently because mm. U.S. is a very particular experience for a low level to, for a mid to low level act. It's a very particular experience, right? You know, and uh, I've only experienced mid level acts at my height. You know what I mean? But I'm coming back, so you know, fuck with me, Golden Voice. Holla at your boy. <laughs> email is email is um um bus driver has a big penis at gmail dot com. <laughs> I'm not gonna send any emails to that. No, it's it's not it's not a real email address. <laughs> but um, how is touring the U.S. and Europe a different beast? Touring the U.S. is very hard because I've never gotten to tour Europe. Oh really? No. Oh, it's 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 it depends on how you how you foray onto the scene, I guess, mm-hmm. on onto the, the public consciousness. But uh, it's really great. They're really accommodating. Good venues, lots of staff, interesting food. Regional chocolates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Regional chocolates. Real shit. That sounds good. Sound systems that sound like like there's something there's something systemic to how they sound. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than just. Is it easier to draw out there? I think your drawing power has more shelf life out there. They stay hungrier for longer. 
Yeah, because they're there's a different relationship with the arts out there. Yeah. And especially with live music, there's a way different relationship. People have festivals. People have had festivals there all their lives. And, like, that's just, like, they become go- cultural go-tos. And it's just, like, you go to the festival and you see whatever, Red Man and Method Man. And you see Joanna Newsom. And you, you see everything, you know, you know, and that's just what you do. Yeah. Or most people, of course, that's not what every people. That's that's not what everybody does. But a lot of young people, that's how they live their lives. So, um, so the festival culture over there, that is like crazy. Yeah. And you know, the U.S. has been trying to adapt recently. You know, because it's so bankable, and uh, but uh, you can't beat it over the festival culture in in France alone. But in Europe, it's just like you get the best bills. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if you're a low-level act or a mid-level act or whatever kind of act, you know, those um, – you need those shows when you're doing your runs, you know. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, it's a way different experience. And uh, I don't know. It's it's, uh, it's it's way better. <laughs> How many records have you put out? Um, I think officially – Seven? Is it officially seven or officially eight? I think it's officially seven. But Do you have one that you have a most comfortable relationship with? Not really. I uh, I kind of feel haunted by a lot. I don't feel haunted by a lot of the old ones. I'm really appreciative of a lot of the old ones. Um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty into them. I have a weird relationship with my last record on on anti slash epitaph, which is called Jelly Beam. I have a weird relationship with that record, but. But aside from that, why do you have a real relationship with that one? I don't know. I just, I just don't know. I don't, I don't. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Let me back up. I don't know. I just feel like a lot of things went wrong outside of that record that make me loathe that record. And I know that I shouldn't. <laughs> and that's it. That's what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. But that's it, man. You know, you do your work and you move on. You know what I mean? Beyond that one, are there any that you like cringe when you listen to now? Um, I don't listen to them ever. So, and I don't know anyone who likes my music who would play them for me. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, all my friends, no one listens. I mean, I bet I heard the Asa bumps all those. Uh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> no, just fucking. I don't. I don't really come around Mike's house during those hours. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm interested in the like plight of a discography because I know that throughout people's careers there are some records that more people gravitate towards you know what i mean and maybe they can become a thorn in an artist's side is there a record when you're on the road where people are like i'll oh, play songs from this one and it fucking gets obnoxious well i'm known for one song and one song only uh it's called imaginary places i just want to hold your hand till you die right yeah 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 I did that song recorded that song in 2002 in daddy kev's apartment in echo park at the yeah. time yeah. And uh yeah, it's a song produced by Paris X and it's uh it's my hit. And is it is it a thorn in your side now? No, it's not. I I like it. I wish people would like it more. I don't care. That's fine. You're still down with performing it. I don't care, man. I'm yeah. I'm every time I show up and people show up, I'm like, "Man, man, let's go." Yeah. Press play. Yeah. Motherfucker, we're ain't we ain't supposed to be here. It's borrowed time. 
I really like your live performances. I think that um, you can really see you getting lost in the music while you perform, if that doesn't sound weird or cliche. But I always appreciate when a fucking performer can lose themselves in the music and they really are feeling it. Is it a good form of escapism for you? Nah, it's just a performance. What is it like to feel like you're as antisocial as you are, but then be on a pedestal in front of a crowd? Is it comforting or is it uh, or is it jarring? Uh, no, it's it's good because you don't. I don't really. Uh, most of the times, I don't really interpret crowds as. I'm not really nervous until I'm nervous up until I get on stage. Then when I'm stage, when I'm on stage, I'm fine. So the crowd becomes an abstraction, and I, I don't know. You just lose yourself in the craft. I don't know. I've always kind of felt like performing is still a form of anti-socialism. Oh, it's an- anti-socialism. It, it kind of is. You know what I mean? Like, even though you are in front of a group of people, you're still separate from them. No, no. it's, it's a, Which it's, I've always found very comforting. Nah, it's crazy. I get far more uncomfortable when I'm walking around in the crowd of a fucking festival and I feel like, you know, just lost in amongst the blank faces. Yeah. That shit is very disconcerting for me. Nah, it is, it is very self-involving. Yeah. What's a bus driver day like? Um, this is it. Yeah. Talking to Lee. <laughs> Every day. Talking to intuition. Every day. Every day. Um, I mean, do you have any morning rituals? I'm, myself, I get up, I'll brew a cup of coffee and make myself a fucking omelet, you know what I mean? And then get about the day. You know, my life is really weird, man. I wake up at 5 a.m. Really? Kind of on accident. Yeah. And then I panically go to the computer and do whatever needs to be done. I found myself doing the same thing recently. Not at 5, but at like 6.30. I'm up, and I don't know why. Yeah. No. And I hate it. Yeah. yeah. Do you have um, street parking where you have to move? Is that why? No. No, I'm worried. I'm trying to finish an album. I'm fucking... Nervous. How deep are you into it? I don't know, man. It's just too, it's too big of an undertaking. I thought I knew what I was doing at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You... you, you you hit these bends and you're like, where did this gulf of music come from? And why do I have to consider it? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And like, God, it's good, but is it all, is it the right kind of good? Urgh! You know what I mean? And it's just, it's, it's, I'm really at that point. So Yeah, it becomes crippling for me as it has been over the last three years. Like, I... I could have put out a record a long time ago. Yeah. I had enough songs, but it's like I keep fucking wanting to go, oh, no, I just need I need that one more bit of magic or something. You know nah, what I, mean? I mean, that's that's what makes it good, probably, mm. hopefully, at the end of the day. But but I'm, 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 I'm stressed. I have deadlines and I have mm. plans. And because I'm my own boss, no one will tell me to meet the deadline mm. <laughs> except me. <laughs> yeah, when you say you have deadlines, are they self-set deadlines, or are you working with a oh, label? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the new reality. The label and everything is just an apparatus of you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I self-manage, so. You've always been this kind of uh, recording artist mercenary where you kind of put out one or two albums on a label and then go to the next thing. How, how does that happen? Just trying to look for a situation that's that's great. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to find a situation i i you know when it's time to find a label i aggressively you know try to seek out every option mm-hmm. i don't know you just you just really have to assess i think it has to do with when i came about and what kind of music people associate with me you know i came about and i kind of came on the on the wings of Kind of like a, a quasi trend, I guess. Andy Rapp in the early odds had a really particular tinge. 
Yeah. So uh, that's kind of when I got a little bit more going on with me, kind of in light of that and other things. But when I did that, I kind of cut my teeth touring with uh, mainly indie bands. So uh, so <laughs> I kind of did a lot of things. I feel like I did a lot of things that uh, a lot of people wouldn't have done back then because I was really in. I was internalizing what I was learning and doing that, you know. And I thought I just had to be a a road warrior. Yeah, which which I I guess I kind of had to do, but I ended up being one. I, but I don't know what that means because I don't talk to anyone about being a road warrior. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. There's no badge of honor. You don't like you know pound fists and let's say, oh yeah, it's not that kind of deal. It's very solitary. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? yeah, I mean, but uh, but it's all good. Yeah, I think that was definitely an early odds thing. Like a lot of labels and groups built themselves up by just being on the road all fucking year. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's a bit of a different dynamic now. Like where I, I, it seemed like for a while you had to just live on the internet a few years ago, and and the road wasn't mattering as much. Mm-hmm. But I feel like maybe it's starting to come back where touring is making a difference again. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Touring, touring is a funny thing in the U.S. I feel like to uh, tour in the U.S. you really have to have some kind of trick. If you if you uh, if you're a middle level to low level act of any sort, there's some trick that you employ. Like what? I don't know. Some, some trick you employ to keep you on the road. Like oh, like oh, I get this special discount on rentals, or oh, I own this this van because I bought it because my girlfriend had an accident when she bit on a on an ice cold strawberry at 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 um at quiznos and now and now i can buy the van and now we can tour more some kind of like outlier opportunity (laughs) or or like smart investment early on that allows that allots for touring yeah yeah or else if it gets overly expensive huh well it's just tough ever had to rough up a promoter to get your pay never that's tight never in my life that's good don't plan on it good I mean, you're you're a man of intimidating physical stature. I feel like you could if you wanted. I'll never do that. <laughs> I mean, that depends on how much money it is, but I won't do that. <laughs> so yeah, tell the people where they can find Dorner versus Tookie. Oh, Dorner versus Tookie is on the Hellfire Club Bandcamp site. Hellfire dot Bandcamp. Hellfire Club. Hellfire Club dot Bandcamp dot com. Hellfire with a Y. Hellfire with a Y. You can look for songs from uh, Bus Driver, Milo, No Can Do, Mike Eagle, Rhetoric Ramirez, uh, Kale. Who else? Uh, the Cleaners. The Cleaners. Um, special guest star. Taurus the- Scott. Yes, Taurus Scott. Yeah. As he does the intro. Um, we have a special guest appearance by Jeremiah J. Jeremiah J. On Warp Records. And uh, and yes, it's a, it's a very fun little jaunt into our rap universe please yeah, enjoy it yeah do enjoy it it is a good it is a good and fun listen and i'm gonna do a song what is that song gonna be called barbs over breakfast scones that's my song <laughs> on doing the first two kids. yeah yeah nice it's, no it's not <laughs> why do you say that Nah, I just got all these punny uh, song titles in. Like, I know your song titles are very clever. Nah, they ain't clever, man. Barbs over breakfast scones. Because like you think about it later, you're like, man, that's some pretentious shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I mean, there's charm in the pretension. You know what I mean? But it's all fun. Yeah, I mean, you guys are you guys, you're just aware. You guys are aware, and you can fucking roast things, and it's good. I don't know. <laughs> Where can the people find you online, Reagan? People can find me on. Twitter, just go on Twitter and 
So there's a bus driver, and the the black man is me. Is it bus driver with two R's though? Bus driver with two R's on Twitter and on on uh, Facebook. It's bus driver with a backward slash at the end of bus driver. Okay. Uh, for, for for some reason, I can't get the rights to my name, and uh, and uh, you can find me final tour dates about upcoming shows and stuff on busdriverse.com um this is busdriverse.com and um yes what am i doing oh at this time i will have released a song from the Dornovers Tuki sessions i did a song called the worst mm-hmm. and it'll be out and it's kind of a rendition of uh worst behavior did you watch the, the worst behavior video? No, I just saw because we 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 did it a few days ago. Then yeah. I saw the video. Yeah, Drake's red bearded friend is funny. I love Drake, man. I'm not gonna lie; it's the funniest thing that could have happened to music. I'm super down with Drake too. People are so surprised by that. I mean, I like Drake's music enough. It's like okay, I'm I'm, I'm with it. Yeah, I'm with it. But on top of that, he's the he is the funniest public persona I've ever encountered. He's just he's just. It's like nigga, you're Canadian. Like, <laughs> like, but all of his videos are like in the fucking, you know, roughest part. So like that. Like, why is he in Memphis filming this video? You know what I mean? Like, it's. So I mean, weird. it looks cool. It's just like it does look cool. It's like you're a Canadian hipster, man. Come on, it's all good. <laughs> People are so racist, man. It's like just because someone's half black don't mean they just black. Like he's just he's just a white guy with a little bit of flavor. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's all good, and that's fine. Like, yeah. and that's fucking fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But I love him for that because that's it's the funnest shit ever. He's embracing it. I mean, every time I see him do an interview, it's just like Jesus. I just like doing cartwheels. It's the funniest shit. <laughs> but, but yeah, like that's why rap's really interesting right now because um, top forty guys are crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the, a lot of the top forty guys are doing pretty creative shit right now collectively. You know, because of desperation. Yeah, totally. That's why the game is fucked. Because mm-hmm. motherfuckers are holding on to millions, and they're stealing everything that all the little innocuous little random ratbacks do. <laughs> it, that's very true. They borrow. Everybody borrows from everybody. It's and it's instantaneous. It's yeah, crazy. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for coming in. I hope that it was pain free in your antisocial realm. I hope I wasn't too crazy. I'm sorry, man. I no, don't get out good. much. It's, no, it's fine. I and I'm, I'm really bad at press. I, I try not to do phone. Ah, this isn't press. This is just friends talking. Come on. I know, but at the end of the day, it turns it, people hear it who aren't my friend. Yeah, that's true. And then they judge me on it. But to be fair, I'm not even sure that anybody listens to the podcast. Just worry more about the video. If you do get in that, that's what will affect you Oh, more. tight, tight. That's right. Yeah, and you're good at the, the live rapping, so you'll be fine. Uh, anyhow, you can look for my man, Bus Driver, at Bus Driver with two R's on Twitter and busdrivers.com. My name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition, and you can follow me on Twitter at It's Intuition. My man Ben Shim behind the boards making the shit sound buttery at I Am Database, based with two S's. You can find us as a unit at That's Kinda Neat and on Facebook.com slash Kinda Neat. You can find Bus Driver performing Barb's Over breakfast scones good memory right there yeah on youtube.com slash that's kind of neat and everything wrapped up in a pretty package on kind of neat.net no one is listening at this point but thank you for tuning in this was kind of neat